Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from one of Britain's leading experts on machine learning. The history of hardware is punctuated by this singular moment where we go from this linear growth to this exponential growth, and that's the foundation of the digital revolution. I suspect we're seeing a singular moment in the development of software. That was Chris Bishop, director of Microsoft's UK Research Lab. I went to talk to him in his offices overlooking the dreaming spires of Cambridge University, and I was keen to know whether, in his view, all the excitement about the transformative power of AI and machine learning is justified. Tell us, Chris, what do you do at Microsoft Research? Really, I divide my time between a variety of different things. I run the research lab, but I maintain a keen personal interest in machine learning and try to remain reasonably hands-on. So I do all kinds of things, a variety, probably the hallmark of my particular role, everything from thinking about the day-to-day operation of the lab to talking to people like yourselves, engaging with the rest of the company and thinking about the future of the technology. How many people do you have here and what's the particular focus of this branch of Microsoft Research? We're about 300 or so full-time employees in the building. We span quite a broad range of research activities. We look at the infrastructure of machine learning and cloud computing, including ways in which we can store data, the ways in which we can process data, new kinds of silicon, for example, operating in the cloud. We think about the security, the programming models, if you like, the layer that sits on top of the hardware. And then we have a lot of effort around machine learning, the algorithms of machine learning, the general techniques and tools for machine learning, but also applications in a diverse range of domains, including things like healthcare or the future of work. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd like very much to focus on machine learning. And the world and his dog has suddenly got incredibly excited about machine learning and seen as this great revolutionary technology. You've been involved in this field for about 30 years and you've written the book on the subject or several books on the subject of machine learning. How do you assess where we are in the machine learning cycle? Are we really right to get so excited about what's going on at the moment? That's a great question. So yes, I've been in the field for about 30 years. Actually, I started out in physics and was having a very happy career in physics when just over 30 years ago, Jeff Hinton published his famous paper on backpropagation. And I realized this was foundational because it represented a shift from computers which are programmed to do things, to machines which could learn for themselves by effectively being trained using data. To me, that was so exciting and so transformational that I made what at the time seemed like a pretty radical decision to walk away from a very successful career as a theoretical physicist and move into what at the time was a fairly obscure field of neural networks and machine learning. Of course, in the last few years, as you say, it's really taken off in a spectacular way. I think my view of 30 years ago was vindicated. This really is transformational. It's taken a little bit longer to get going than I thought, but now we're really seeing it take off. In and a why has way. it acquired such momentum now? There's a variety of factors. Really, several things have come together. This is not just one new piece of technology. It is a fundamental transformation in the way we create technology. The shift between human intellect programming the machine and telling the computer through software how to solve the problem step by step, that's being replaced by an approach in which instead we program the machine to be adaptive and to learn, and then we train it using data. 
So the key ingredients are, well, first of all, data. We're seeing an exponential increase in the amount of data in the world, and that's not going to slow down any time soon. There's just a tidal wave of data coming at us over the coming years and decades, and we don't see any, any sign of that abating. That data is the fuel of machine learning, so that's a key ingredient. The second ingredient, it turns out you need a lot of compute power. When I look back at some of the computers that we were using 30 years ago to train neural networks, it's sort of laughable today that we would make any progress. What we've discovered is you need very powerful machines, many orders of magnitude faster than anything we had in days gone by. The third ingredient is algorithms. So we've seen some advances from the early days of neural networks and machine learning. We've seen new techniques developed, new algorithms developed, which again have really accelerated the pace of advance of this technology. And it's the coming together of those three which have allowed us to solve some problems which previously seemed insurmountable. Things like translating the human voice into text with a reasonably high accuracy in a way that can tolerate some noise that's independent of the speaker that doesn't need prior training and so on. That was a largely unsolved problem for many years. Now it's a largely solved problem. Or giving a computer a sense of vision, be able to look around a scene and just identify objects. Again, a very hard problem that in large part has been addressed to more or less human level performance. Those things in turn have fueled excitement in the field. As you say, everybody's interested in this. There's a tremendous amount of investment. A lot of smart people now are coming into the field. And that's adding a sort of fourth dimension to this. There's a flywheel. We're seeing a lot more investment, a lot more interest, a lot more influx of very smart people. And that's driving this feedback loop that's propelling the technology at ever faster rates. And is that getting completely overhyped? I mean, you've been in the sector long enough to have seen some AI winters, as they're called. Do you think we're heading for another winter or has something really very significant changed, which means that we're just going to be on this upward trajectory from here on? I think the problem for me has a lot to do with the terminology artificial intelligence. So, you know, we're sitting here in my office on the top floor of the building. We're looking out on a beautifully sunny Cambridge, and just there we can see King's College Chapel, the sort of intellectual home of Alan Turing, who in some sense was one of the founders of the field more than seven decades ago. And he and others had an aspiration to try to understand whether we could build machines that would have all of the intellectual cognitive capabilities of the human mind. And it's a very reasonable question. It's a very reasonable aspiration. And it has been subject to these cycles of excitement. But my view is that achieving machines with those capabilities may be many, many decades away. Yes, we've made some breakthroughs in the ability of machines to recognise objects, interpret images, synthesise speech and so on. However, that's just a tiny fraction of what the human brain does. So artificial intelligence in the true sense, I think, is still a long way off. And excitement that this is somehow going to happen anytime soon, I think, is misplaced. And so I think we will see a cycle in terms of the excitement around AI in the true general sense of AI. I've heard uh, one of the other great AI experts in Cambridge, Zubin Garamani, talking about even if we're far away from artificial general intelligence, that we still will get fantastically powerful, narrow intelligence in particular domains. And he's been talking about the idea that we're almost living in a pre-Copernican world of intelligence. What do you think he means by that concept? Can well, you explain to us? Zubin is spot on that in certain wedges of what you might call intelligence, we really are at a very exciting time. So I believe that all of the excitement, the investment around let's call it machine learning, because that's what we're really talking about, is fully justified. It is not simply yet another little piece of technology. It is transformational, it is revolutionary, but not because it's going to deliver full artificial intelligence anytime soon. It's revolutionary for a very different reason. Maybe I can just take a moment to expand on that a little bit. 
Let me draw an analogy with the history of hardware because technology has hardware and software. So let's just pause and look at the history of hardware. If we think about computer hardware going back to the early days, we had Charles Babbage with his analytical engine based on brass gear wheels. We had then the development of vacuum tubes or thermionic valves as we call them. We had transistors, we had logic gates, we had integrated circuits, large-scale integration. Today we have data centers and almost buildings full of hundreds of thousands of processors. All the time, hardware is getting faster, better, cheaper. But the key point is that that's not a uniform progression. For many years, it's what you might loosely call a linear advance, that each generation was a bit better than the previous one. And then something very special happened. There was a particular piece of technology which was really a singular moment in the development of hardware. And it's technology called photolithography. And photolithography is a technology that allows us effectively to print computers. It's how silicon chips are made. Up to that time, computers were made by making the individual components, the brass gear wheels or the transistors, and then assembling them to build the computer. In photolithography, you print the whole computer, in fact, a whole wafer full of perhaps hundreds of processors, in effectively a single step. And what that means is that if you make the components smaller, you get more of them on the same wafer, and so they get cheaper. Now, the really remarkable thing about transistors, which are the components of modern computers, is that as they get smaller, they get faster. So when they get smaller, they get cheaper and they get faster. And this is an extraordinary technology. Imagine a technology where the better version is cheaper. If you think about cars, if you want a faster car, you expect to have to pay more money. But imagine if the faster, better car was somehow cheaper, then what would that do to the economics of cars? Well, this is really the impact on the economics of computer technology, that this ability to make things smaller and at the same time faster and cheaper is really the foundation of the digital revolution. It's called Moore's Law. It really says that the number of transistors we can put on a piece of silicon doubles every couple of years, and as they get smaller, they get faster. That's the whole reason we have big tech companies like Microsoft. It's the reason why you're carrying a supercomputer around in your pocket. That would be inconceivable without Moore's Law. So the history of hardware is punctuated by this singular moment where we go from this linear growth to this exponential growth, and that's the foundation of the digital revolution. I suspect we're seeing a singular moment in the development of software. So again, software has this same long history as hardware. In fact, the world's first software developer was Ada Lovelace, and she wrote software for Babbage's analytical engine, those brass gear wheels. Even though it didn't exist. Even though it didn't exist and never really got built and never really worked, but she developed the software for it. And of course, she had to think what we think of as the lowest level. She had to think about every brass gear wheel in exactly which position it had to be in and, and really program at the lowest level. And of course, since then, software developers have become much more effective, much more productive. Today, a software developer will very quickly produce a piece of software that represents some sort of app on your phone that does something interesting and useful. And they can be so productive, of course, because they build on the work of others. So a, a software developer no longer has to say how each transistor switches on and off. They will have a line of code which represents a library, which represents thousands of lines of code written by somebody else. Those lines of code, in turn, are compiled down to the machine code using compilers, interpreters, and machine code, and various pieces of technology, all of which together make software developers much more productive today than in Ada Lovelace's day. But it's still, if you like, a cottage industry. Software development today is still reliant on the human intellect understanding the algorithm and telling the computer what to do step by step. 
I believe we're at a singular moment in the development of software, rather like photolithography was for hardware. Because when you go to machine learning, you do something radically different. You don't tell the computer how to solve the problem. Instead, you write a very different kind of software, software like, say, neural network software, which allows the computer to learn from experience. And that software might actually be rather independent of the task that you're going to apply it to. So you develop some neural network software, and in the morning you apply it to speech recognition, in the afternoon to computer vision, in the evening to translating natural languages. Now what you do is you train the computer to solve the problem using data. So the rate-limiting step, if you like, is no longer the human intellect of the programmer to keep this complexity in their head. Instead, it's the fuel, it's the data. Now that's a pretty staggering claim. We're at the kind of Moore's Law for software. If you're right, what are the consequences of that? What does this acceleration of computing power mean for what we are able to do? Well, I think that's a bit like saying to Gordon Moore, you know, a few <laughs> decades ago, well, okay, you've got, you know, you've gone from 16 transistors to 32 transistors, so what? It's almost unimaginable. I see this machine learning revolution, which is what really is happening, as being pervasive. It will impact any way that you can think technology might have a role to play. And so, really, in a sense, the sky is the limit. I think what we have to do is sort of drill down and pick some particular examples. One of the application domains for machine learning that I'm personally very interested in, and it's an area that we do a lot of research in in the Microsoft Research Lab here in Cambridge, is in healthcare, application to healthcare. Healthcare really is set for a revolution. In a sense, it's in a relatively primitive state from the point of view of data. We recently saw the government ban the NHS from buying fax machines. So we know that for understandable reasons, but somewhat frustrating reasons, healthcare is still in the early stages of digital revolution. And yet the potential for digital technology in general and machine learning specifically to influence healthcare is truly enormous. And I hope when we look back in 10 years time, we will really see that machine learning Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. has become pervasive throughout the entire healthcare system. Now you're talking about the data revolution there, particularly in healthcare. A lot of people have been sounding the alarm recently about some of the adverse consequences of this data revolution and surveillance capitalism is it being called in some areas. And also, particularly in healthcare, we've had some rows about data, who owns it, who has the right to exploit it, to use it. How can tech companies use this data in conspicuously trustworthy ways that ensure that we retain the trust of the public. That's a tremendously important topic. As somebody who's been in the field for 30 years, I would say the conversation is really shifting from what can we do, which has been the question for most of that time, to the point now where the technology has really been demonstrated to work in the sense that the machine learning can be trained to do very useful things with high accuracy. And so the conversation is shifting from what can we do to what should we do and how should we deploy this. And is it also a question of what we should not do? Of course, very much so. And so understanding First of all, the limits of the technology itself and what it is capable of, and then the subset of those things with which it's appropriate to use the technology. The first of those is a technological question. It's for technologists to understand the limits of the capabilities of the technology and to push those limits out. 
But the question of how should we use this technology is a much broader one. It's a societal one, and it's not something which needs to be left to the technologists or just to the technology companies. And so one of the things which gives me tremendous optimism is that even though at the very early stages of this machine learning revolution, we're already having this debate, you and I having this discussion now, it's taking place in many venues involving many stakeholders, not just the technologists and technology companies. I've been working closely with the Royal Society, for instance, over the last couple of years to create various forms of public engagement whereby we can bring many different people into this debate to broaden the understanding of what the technology can do and what it might be able to do in the future, and then really start to address these difficult and complex questions about how should we deploy the technology, what should we do, and as you say, equally importantly, what should we choose not to do, even though technologically it's feasible, we might as a society decide not to do certain things. There has been a lot of discussion about how sometimes scientific advances can be prevented by the kind of public backlash that there is, and the classic example of this, I guess, in Europe would be genetically modified organisms. How do you think that we can ensure that machine learning or AI more generally doesn't suffer from that fate? That's a great question. I think if you look at the history of GMO, you can contrast that with, let's say, the discussion around human embryology and fertilisation, which is a much more informed, open debate recognising that there are ethical issues and the end result of, I think, a much healthier form of public debate was that that technology landed extremely well. There are many couples today who very happily have young children because they've been able to benefit from that technology. So if we think about that contrast, we can ask what questions can we learn? And I think one of the key questions is that if you contrast genetically modified organisms with human fertilisation embryology, in the latter case, there was a much healthier public debate. And I think we've learned that lesson. I think that's what we're seeing today, that even though we are, in a sense, at the very early stages of this technology, we're already being very thoughtful about broad discussion at all levels about what the technology can do, but also about what it should be used for. Now, I'm still trying to get my head around this idea of Moore's Law for software. And, I mean, at Microsoft, you have this mantra that computing is moving to the intelligence cloud, it's moving to the intelligent edge. In other words, we as users now have access to phenomenal computing power in the cloud, and we also have it in our handheld devices as well. So if you're right that we're at this beginning of this step change revolution in terms of software development how do you see that computing playing out? What do you think in the next few years we'll be able to do on our smartphones that we haven't been able to do at the moment? Yes, so the cloud itself is a very powerful enabler because it provides large-scale storage computation. However, the edge is also emerging as incredibly important, not just through smartphones, but we're also going to see the so-called Internet of Things, literally tens of billions of Internet-connected devices which will provide everything from the humble light bulb to some kind of medical device to, you know, your imagination is really the limit of what's possible there. Now, what all this means is that there will be many opportunities for us to use the power of machine learning, both at the edge and in the cloud, both through data that's gathered at the edge, but data that's amalgamated centrally through the cloud, where solutions are redistributed to the edge. So this is a technologically very rich domain. But again, the question is, well, how should we use this technological capability? 
One very interesting aspect to this is just the sheer quantity of data that we're going to be dealing with. The, as I've said already, the amount of data is growing exponentially. And exponentially is a very special kind of growth. Imagine doubling every couple of years or so, which is roughly what we're seeing. We simply won't be able to do everything in the cloud anyway. We'll have to be thinking about doing computation at the edge because we won't want to be sending data backwards and forwards. But there's another dimension to this, which I think is very important, and we call this confidential machine learning. The idea that much of this data is private, it's sensitive, it needs to remain confidential. It's not simply enough to have the technology to gather data and send it around. We have to be thinking about who has ownership of that data, how is that data being used, how is it being protected. And so we'll be thinking increasingly, I think, about not only confidential computation in the cloud, which is very much one of the focal points of Microsoft, indeed one of the strong research themes of our research lab here, but also what does that imply at the edge? So for example, you might have a sensor at the edge, it might be a camera, perhaps it's a little security camera on your door. You want to know is that somebody delivering the post or somebody come to burgle your house, for example, or a friend come to visit or whatever it might be. Potentially that's capturing 24-7 real-time streaming video. First of all, you certainly aren't going to send all of that to the cloud. If everybody did that, the internet would collapse. You might want to run local processing on that, say, is something interesting happening? Has somebody come to your house? How can you help? What should the appropriate response be? Mm -hmm. But also you might want to think about who does that data belong to? How is that being used? You may not necessarily want to extract all of the information, just the relevant information according to the particular task that you mm -hmm. have in mind. So we'll see in the future without doubt, I think, a very distributed model in which at the so-called edge, you will have a whole variety of computing devices, but with the cloud still playing a critical role in linking all of these things together. I'd like to delve a bit further into the ethical side of all of this discussion. One way of looking at machine learning is that it's a system for discriminating between one set of things and another. It's designed to sort one set from another. And that clearly can be incredibly useful if it's helping you to decide what are the problems on a retinal scan, but very obvious ways in which this could be a very bad thing as well. So how do we avoid the worst outcomes in terms of algorithmic discrimination? Well, let me first say that machine learning is very much broader than just discrimination or, if you like, classification, as we call it, separating things into groups, although that is a very important early application domain. We can bubble up a level and think of it more generally as decision-making or decision support. So if you're deciding whether somebody has cancer or not based on a medical image, then really what the machine learning is doing is taking this complex 3D image, doing some very sophisticated processing, and what it's really producing is a probability. It's saying the probability of the person having cancer or not. Now, typically what you're going to want to do is to feed that to a person, to the clinician. They're going to want to take the information being produced by this neural network, whatever it might be, and factor that into a whole lot of other important variables that will then decide what the pathway should be for that person. Let's take the example of diagnosing cancer. Taking somebody who has cancer and misdiagnosing them as not having cancer it could often be very bad. They might go for an extended period before it's realised they really do have cancer. It could be life-threatening. The flip side, where you take somebody who doesn't have cancer and you misdiagnose as cancer, that's a different kind of error. That could be annoying. It may cause them a lot of stress. They may have to have extra tests, but at the end of the day, they didn't have cancer anyway. It's a much less costly mistake. So the decision-making needs to reflect that. You're going to be much more conservative. And if the system might say, there's a 10% chance of having cancer, that might be enough to say, nevertheless, we're going to conduct the extra tests and see what's going on. 
you might make decisions about care pathways based on the cost of treatment will be important. Some kinds of treatments can be very expensive. There's the cost to the person. If you're going to have chemotherapy, there are a lot of side effects and you may make a decision not to go through with that for personal reasons. So what we're really seeing here is not the machine making decisions. What we're seeing is the machine working in partnership with, in this case, a clinical expert and in partnership with the patient and collectively they're making decisions in which the machine is doing the thing that it's good at, namely taking these very complicated, subtle, three-dimensional images and interpreting them in terms of the possibility that cancer may be present. And then the clinician, the patient, working together with that information to make a decision about a care pathway. And so really, in many cases, we'll see machines working in close partnership with humans, not machines doing the job of people. So what you're saying really is that we shouldn't embed too much trust in these systems by themselves. We always have to consider them in a human context. It depends on the example. So if we take, say, spam email filtering, I'm just very happy the machine does it automatically, (laughs) right? Occasionally it might let a bit of spam through, not to worry, but it's blocking out this torrent of spam and that's great and really quite honestly We just want to let the machine get on. So fully automated discrimination between spam email and good email. That works really well. That's how it should be. Conversely, the cancer example, we don't want an app on your phone just deciding, you know, you've got cancer, this is going to be the treatment and so on. I can't imagine not having a human in the loop. What we do want, though, is the expert clinician there to be freed up from having to spend a lot of time doing the low-level, quantitative, tedious work that computers are frankly better at anyway, and free up their time to be much more patient-facing and making these complex decisions that are not purely about the signal processing, they're all about the human aspect as well. As you mentioned earlier, we're sitting here with this fabulous view across Cambridge. The city is renowned for churning out a lot of very smart people who are great employees, I'm sure, of Microsoft. But one of the constraints on this whole machine learning revolution is the lack of people with expert knowledge. How are we going to address that lack of talent uh, across the board? That's absolutely right, and it's become really a a major central issue in the whole field. I said there were three ingredients. There's data, there's compute power, and there's algorithms. But really, for algorithms, you can really read human talent people. All of the research in this domain is done very much in the open, and so really it's about people. And in most cases, the thing that's holding back the technology is just the availability of people who really understand the algorithms. So what we're doing very much in Microsoft, in particular in Microsoft Research here in Cambridge, is taking very much a partnership model. So it would be all too easy simply to go and plunder the universities and pull out top talent from the universities. And in the short term, that might be an appealing thing to do. But we're taking a much longer term view and thinking about how can we work in partnership with the academic world in a way that's mutually beneficial, that doesn't simply plunder the top talent, but really thinks about the talent pipeline. Because we need professors in universities to supervise PhD students and create that next wave of talent. And so in our partnership model, there are many, many aspects to this. For example, we fund a large number, literally hundreds of PhD students over the years. And those students are co-supervised by researchers in our research lab and academics in universities. We, just a few weeks ago, announced a multi-million pound collaboration with Cambridge University, again focused on partnerships whereby academics in the university would spend, let's say, a day or two a week working in Microsoft Research, but nevertheless retain their positions within the university. And we would contribute to the teaching of some of the courses in the university, again, more joint supervision of students, finding ways to allow researchers in the academic world to have access to the scale of resources that we're fortunate enough to have in the large tech companies, but at the same time not 
depleting the capabilities of universities to train the next generation. So we're very much focused on this partnership model. And how can Cambridge, or more broadly the UK, or even more broadly Europe, compete in this new world now? I mean, MIT has just announced that they're going to put a billion dollars into their computing school. Kai-Fu Lee has said that Europe is a bit of an also-ran in the AI world compared to the US or China. Is that true, do you think? I think we have a great advantage in Europe, which is the talent pool. And as I said, it's become actually the bottleneck in the development of this technology. We do have great universities. We have great talent. We know that we have a tremendous tradition in Europe and in the UK in particular in science and technology. We're tremendously strong in innovation, in startups. But we do need to recognise that this field is moving very fast and does need serious investment. I mean, I know our own government's a little bit distracted with one or two other things at the moment, of course. But we do need to give this very serious attention. As I said earlier, it's not just another technology. It is a major revolution in the way we create technology. The level of excitement is fully justified, but we need to be very thoughtful about investments. We are doing a lot across Europe and we are doing a lot in the UK. I think we need to do more and we need to move faster. Wonderful. We must end it there. But thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. As usual, we'll end with a special request to our listeners. We'd like you to take part in an informal survey and answer any or all of the following questions. Which technologies would you describe as overrated or underrated and why? Which non-tech book would you recommend that gives the best insight into the impact of technology on our world? And what's the biggest threat to the tech industry today? Please send your answers to those questions to tectonic at ft.com. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, do take a closer look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.